Hey guys, welcome uh, to this weekend online, Grace Church, Norton Campus. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. Love the fact you're checking things out. Uh, if this is your first time kind of hanging out with us, we'd love to hear from you. Just let us know your name and uh, we'd love to communicate with you. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to invite you to come be a part of what's going on here. 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock, 5.30, every Sunday we gather together. So I'd love to meet you. Love for you to come make this your church home. This weekend, we're going to be doing something really, really special. Uh, we have somebody here on our staff has been here 50 years. That's unheard of, unheard of. But his name is Pastor Bob Combs, and Pastor Bob and his wife's name is Julie. For the last 50 years, have invested their life here. A lot of the DNA of Grace Church came because of Pastor Bob and Julie's heart and how they've led. And so we are taking this weekend to kind of celebrate them, acknowledge them, their faithfulness, their love, their leadership. And so I sat down and had an interview with them, and I'd love for you to kind of peek in on that interview. So why don't you check this out before we jump into God's Word together. Retell the story, though, like when you drove by and what you said to him about oh. that church there. I mean, how, tell me how that went again. Well, we would drive by because my mom, of course, lived here in Barberton. And when I, we'd come home to see her, um, we'd drive right past this. Huh. I remember a few times just reaching over and saying, you know what? If you become pastor of that church, I'll bet, I'll bet they could. 200 people there. Wow. How many people were here when you came here? Probably 60. 60. We, we, we went from that 60 people uh, in 1973 till when we got to 1979, we were running 300. Huh. That's so we in- surpassed the 200. Yeah, <laughs> you beat your number, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had some interesting experience. Back at that time, I would go to Barberton Hospital, and I'd say, would you give me a list of people that didn't list a church when they came in here? And they'd give me a list. And I, I, I called on many of those. And some of those started coming to church here. Where did this whole um, good-looking things how did that start everybody knows you as the good-looking pastor well i i realized not long after i was here you know i'd been in in these other churches that people don't relate to a pastor uh and and in fact they 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 kind of throw up their hands so i started out saying I was the Archbishop of Norton. <laughs> I, I realized, eh, this, this ain't going to work. <laughs> I, I've, I've got to get something else. So I came up with the idea that uh, I, I, was, I was good looking. <laughs> and, that, and that worked. Yeah. Part of the heartbeat of this place is a phrase, and I'd love to know the origin of it. It's this, accept people where they're at, take them where they need to go. What's the origin and why is that kind of, why was that the heartbeat is the heartbeat? One of the funeral homes every month would send out a little booklet that had different things in it and and there was a pastor that wrote in there. Hmm. He wrote about, uh, about a guy that went into a church and didn't feel accepted at all. 
So this phrase was written down, accept people where they are, so you can take them where they need to go. Mm. That grabbed me. Mm. And I, I, I realized that people who do not feel accepted won't be taken any place. Mm. You, you know, I, I had an experience last week of a kid that was raised here in the church. He got into drugs, spent time in prisons, mm. uh, just all kinds of things. The local judge sent him to Florida last week. Julian had lunch with him. Mm. He was here. Mm. And he had story after story to tell mm. of telling people if nobody's told you yet today, Jesus loves you. Mm. I believe he felt accepted by us. Mm. Condemning people doesn't work. Mm. Loving people does work. Mm. 50 years, you, you have a perspective that well most people don't have what excites you the most about grace church today uh, as you look at it 50 years later i don't know the people hmm. that excites us it does it's a great answer it's a great answer yeah, I, I, I i i don't know where who are they and they don't know me Hey, I wonder if we could maybe close. Do you mind praying for the Norton campus? Do you mind doing that? Don't mind at all. Lord, uh, thank you for the privilege of loving people to Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of making them feel loved by you. Thank you for the privilege of pointing them to a God of grace. Uh, oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus. Lord, help us, help us to get that across. And to cause people to believe that and to accept your forgiveness. I pray, Lord, for our campus here. Thank you for it. Thank you that uh, seeds have been planted out of here that's changed lives. May lives keep being changed. Lord, because you want to use us. You don't want us to miss the opportunities. And we get motivated and energized when we let you use us. So, Father, I, I just pray that we might be productive for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I sure did. Uh, it was fun to sit down with Pastor Bob and Julie and just listen to their heart and how God has used them. And we so appreciate their faithfulness and your life has been impacted by them in one way or another. Even if you don't know them, uh, their faithfulness here has sowed the seeds of the DNA of Grace Church. And 
we love the fact that we get to be a part of people's lives changing. That's been Pastor Bob's motive, people's lives changing. It made me think about what I want to talk to you about today. I remember a day when my life changed for sure. It was a moment I'll never forget as long as I live. I was in the fourth grade. And uh, I, if you didn't know this, I grew up a preacher's kid. And so that means I went to church a lot. Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And uh, every other Monday, just for good measure, right, we'd be in church. So felt like we were in church a lot. Sunday mornings would kind of go like this, 9.30. I think I got my times right. We'd have a gathering, uh, kind of a worship service. Many of you are familiar with that. And then uh, after 9.30, we'd go to Sunday school. And uh, Sunday school was kind of age-based, and so you went with your grade. I remember when I was in the fourth grade, I don't know why this was, but in the fourth grade, uh, we had Sunday school, and for whatever reason, that year, they split the gender. So boys and girls went to their own class. There was a boys' fourth grade, girls' fourth grade. So me and my posse, the boys, uh, fourth grade boys, we had our class up in the balcony, way over to the left. And uh, that's where our class was at. And can I say that our class was boring? <laughs> I don't know how nice to say that. Uh, it was rough. Uh, I just needed to, I don't know how, I hated it. I hated going. Uh, I looked for any possible way to get out of going to Sunday school in the fourth grade. Uh, but I was a preacher's kid, man, so I was there all every Sunday, right? So how in the world am I going to do that? Well, I ha happened to hatch a plan. Uh, one Christmas, I received a gift. Uh, I don't know if you recognize this, but this gift uh, some of you are old like me, right? It's called electronic football. This is way before PlayStation, Xbox, and virtual whatever they have now, right? Uh, literally, you turn this thing on. There's these little dashes that, you, you, that that are the players, and you pretend. And it's like, it was heaven on earth, man. I mean, I love this thing. And all of a sudden, with my brand new Christmas gift, electronic football, a plan was hatched. All of a sudden, my imagination began to think, how can I kind of continue? Because I loved this. I mean, I just got consumed with this, uh, but I didn't like going to Sunday school. So what would happen is in the basement floor of the church where my dad pastored, underneath the steps, there was this old, dark, stinky, dingy room. No windows in that room. When you turn the lights out, completely dark. And so I began every Sunday after 9.30 service, about 10.30, whenever dad got done, 10.45, whenever that was, I would sneak out rather quickly and I would go to that room underneath those steps and I would have my electronic football placed there. And I would get underneath a table that was in there and I'd crouch under that table, shut the door, lights out, completely black. I didn't need to see anything. I knew how to work this thing. And I would mute the sound and I would play my electronic football. And I thought, man, this is the way to do Sunday school. I, I thought, man, this is awesome. Hey, everything was great. Hey, my plan was awesome. Everything was great until it got complicated. <laughs> Everything was great until it got complicated. I hadn't anticipated uh, managing this situation. And it got kind of hard to manage this situation because all of a sudden, my heavenly Sunday school became exhausting for me to manage. Here's what I mean. Uh, the Sunday school teacher would say, Danny, we missed you in Sunday school class. Never thought about that. Had to come up with an answer. So I just would say something like this. Well, I miss being there too, which was a lie. And then I would say to him this. I said, well, you know, my dad's the pastor and I'm running errands for him. He's got important things he has me doing, which was a lie, right? 
And then I'd come home from Sunday school, and my dad would say, Danny, how was Sunday school today? And I would say, Daddy, it was great, which was a lie. And then I would say, yeah, you know, it was great, but Jimmy acted up today in class. And then I'd distract my dad, which was a lie. I had no idea if Jimmy acted up, right? It got really, really hard to manage this. Guys, you have no idea. My little secret, my little electronic football Sunday school heaven secret got exhausting to manage. It was exhausting. It was complicated, but there was no turning back, man. I was in. I was completely in. I had to somehow make this work until, ready, until, ready, until the day that my life changed. I was perched underneath my table just like I was every Sunday in that stinky, dingy, dark, old room in the pitch black. I had all my bases covered. I think it was third and eight on the 25-yard line, if I'm not mistaken. I was getting ready to score, right? And then it happened. Everything changed in an instant, in one second, when the darkness of my little heavenly Sunday school scheme was violently interrupted by some unwelcomed light. That unwelcome light came in the fashion of that door swung open. I couldn't breathe. I was paralyzed. I remember looking out underneath that table at the door where that light came in and I saw, all I saw was a pair of shoes. But I recognized those shoes. They were black wingtip shoes. I'll never forget them as long as I live. My dad polished them every Saturday night before church. I remember as I looked and all of a sudden, I realized that was my dad saying That was the pastor of the church. I remember thinking to myself, what in the world is he doing in this stinky old dark room underneath the steps? Doesn't he have a Sunday school class to teach? And I thought, maybe he doesn't like his either. I don't know, right? I thought, what is he doing here? And all of a sudden he said this, Danny, are you in here? I thought for a brief minute I'd throw him off and say no, but then I caught myself like, okay, and I, I, I didn't breathe. I just, I just sat there. I thought, maybe he'll leave. Maybe he won't find me. And all of a sudden I said nothing. I just sat there underneath that table paralyzed, did not move until all of a sudden my dad, who was standing at the door, went from standing at the door to stooping and looking under the table. And I want to tell you, friends, that is the day my life changed. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because I think some of you uh, today, this week, or recently have had the door of a secret flung wide open in your life. Ah, it's not electronic football, I gotcha. But some unwelcome light burst into a secret that you've been managing. You're exhausted. It's gotten complicated. You thought you had all the bases covered, and then somewhere along the way, uninvited, some light pushed the door open. It's something that you are sure that if others found out, your life would be over. You're positive that if God found out, he'd be done with you. And there's others of you, maybe that's not your situation, but others of you find yourself in that dark, dingy place where you're managing your secret. You have a secret, but now you're stuck. You're in too far. You're left to manage your secret, and quite frankly, it's exhausting. It started as this manageable plan. You figured out how to manage the plan, but now it's almost impossible for you to manage your secret. It's exhausting. It's duplicitous. You need to make sure nobody ever checks your computer. You need to make sure nobody ever gets the code to your phone. Nobody ever sees who you've been talking to you got to keep the secret behind closed doors. And there's others of you, your story's different than that. 
because you figured out a plan to cover your secret, and that plan is you cover your secret with the lie of religion. You look really, really religious on the outside. You have a secret, but nobody would guess it because you're really, really religious. You're really, really a good person. You've disguised it in religious cloak. And you know what you've learned to do? In your religiosity, you've learned to throw everybody off by throwing religious rocks at people who are doing really, really bad things. Here's what I know. Our secrets are easy to hide, and then they become exhausting. They become very hard to manage. And then we begin to think to ourselves, it's almost impossible to think of me ever exposing them. How in the world would I go on? My life would be over. But I think there's a story in the Bible that might challenge that thinking. And it is exactly what some of you need to hear today. And that story might challenge our thinking that what if, what if the moment that secret is exposed is not the moment your life's over, but what if that's the moment that your life truly begins? Stories in John 8. Do you have a Bible? Grab a Bible. Get your phone. Get, get a Bible. Go there. Uh, some of your Bibles will have it in italics and some funky things written about this. Uh, let me just say this in brief. A lot of scholars would say they're not sure where this story fits. So they placed it here. It feels right here. Um, most scholars aren't sure where to put it, but most agree that it is a true account and it belongs in the historical account. It's consistent with the rest of the biblical teaching. It's a fascinating event in the life of Jesus. And the reason I want to talk to you about it today is it's Pastor Bob's favorite story in the Bible. And it has bent the trajectory of the DNA of our church. It's found in John 8. Are you there with me? Good. Here's what it says. The story starts this way at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he, he, that's Jesus, sat down to teach them. Do you see Jesus? He's sitting. He's sitting, have a Bible study. People are crowded around him. Wouldn't you? Uh, can you imagine this? Wouldn't it be awesome? Like, hey, Bible study tonight. Who's teaching? Jesus. I'm in. <laughs> Word of God taught by the Son of God. That sounds like a really good thing. And all of a sudden, as the Son of God's teaching the Word of God, that serene Bible study is violently interrupted by people you think would know better. The teachers of the law, the religious leaders, and the Pharisees brought in. That might be a kind way of saying they drug in. A woman caught in adultery. Just let that sink in for a second. And they made her. Didn't ask her. Didn't invite her. They made her stand before the group. All of a sudden, Jesus having this Bible study and bursting into the scene, into the middle of that Bible study is the religious leaders. They're not alone. They come dragging with them a woman. Can you see her? Let your mind's eye read the Bible in color, not black and white. Can you see her? They drug her out of the act of adultery. They literally drug her out of bed. She barely has a sheet to cover her exposed body. To make matters worse, she was not in bed with her husband. She was in bed with someone else's husband. And the door in a moment to her secret had flung wide open. And now it's on display for all to see. It's interesting to me in this that the man that she was in bed with is never mentioned. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. There's something going on here. She's standing in front of them, Jesus, in the middle of his Bible study. In the law, they then want a Bible. They want to go to the Bible. Moses commanded us to stone such women. And they are right. 
Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. But they look at Jesus and said, now what do you say? They were using this question. I would add in there this woman as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? The details in the indictment are laid out. They said she was caught in the act. This is what the Bible says. Case closed. Now they have their rocks in hands. The stones of the accusers have been picked out. The exposers are ready to execute her. And to make matters worse, they're using this woman. They drug her in the presence of Jesus. They're using her as a means to an end. They want to trap Jesus. They want to put Jesus with their rocks in their hands between a rock and a hard place. I want you to look at what Jesus does. I want you to look at his response. Because Jesus, who is sitting in this Bible study, goes from sitting, but Jesus bent down. He goes to stooping. And he started to write in the dirt with his finger. That's interesting to me. The sitting Jesus, sitting, give, having a Bible study with this woman now exposed, her secret exposed with the religious leaders standing around with rocks and hands. He now goes to stooping and he's all things. He's writing in the dirt. Do you see this? I'm not sure what he's writing. I have some hunches what he might have written. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what's interesting is they were persistent. It's almost like he's ignoring them. They said they kept on questioning him. They won't let it go. So now the sitting Jesus, who now is the stooping Jesus, riding in the dirt, straightens up, and he's the standing Jesus. Do you see this? The sitting Jesus is now standing. He's standing, and he begins to scan the faces of those in the crowd. Do you see Jesus? Let your mind's eye go there. He's scanning and he's looking in their eyes and he's evaluating the contour of the rocks in their hands. He looks at the guilty woman and make no mistake, she is no victim in this. She is guilty. She is a home wrecker. She was sleeping with another woman's husband. She was in bed with another family's daddy. He looks at her and he looks at the religious leaders. And in a moment, the sitting Jesus, who went to stooping, is now standing. And then he begins to speak. And he says to them, let any of you, he looks, can you see him saying it? Go there. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He, in essence, is saying, let the rocks begin. Let the execution start. Start the stoning. But he says on one condition. Can you see it? Can you imagine being in the crowd? He looks them in the eye. Woman right in the middle. In her shame. Crouching. And he says, let's do this. On one condition. Let you, who is in the crowd, who has no sin, be the first to throw stone. And then the standing, speaking Jesus goes back to stooping, writing in the ground. He likes writing in the dirt, doesn't he? It's interesting to me. What's interesting, what happens at this point at this, those who heard what Jesus said began to go away, one at a time. It's interesting, John even puts in here, the older ones went first. Till only there were two left, Jesus, only Jesus. You see this? Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. The execution mob had become an exiting crowd, and now there's only two people left. One by one, they had dropped their rocks. There's a pile of rocks now, no people, no mob, no crowd, 
no execution. And Jesus is left there with the woman. Their trap had backfired on, on them. And now there is the woman who in my mind, there's nothing to say this, I can almost imagine on the ground at this point because she was probably crouching like who's going to throw the first stone. And this woman is there. She's left with Jesus. This woman whose private shame had now become public fodder for gossip. And Jesus. Jesus, the only one in the crowd that day who was without sin, the only one with the credentials to throw the first stone. And I want you to see what happens. The stooping Jesus goes back to standing. And he asks her, woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I can almost see her. She's like, no one, sir. But you're left. You didn't go anywhere. And he was the only one with the credentials to throw that first stone. Read this out loud with me. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Wow. What a story. How could Jesus say that? Some of you are listening. It's like, wow, how could he say this? She's guilty. Don't, don't, don't forget that. She's a home wrecker. She is caught in adultery. Is Jesus just soft on sin? Is this a preacher just going to preach softness on sin again? Is that what's going on here? Not a chance. Jesus is anything but soft on sin. Well, then how, Dan, can he respond like this? Because the only one left in the crowd that day is the only one who had the credentials to throw the stones. And yet I want you to know something. The only one left, his name is Jesus. And he came to earth. He came to earth, not in order to stand and throw stones at sinners, but he came to earth in order to stoop to a cross in order that he might save sinners. Do you know this verse? Do you ever hear it? For God, if you know it, say it with me, so loved the world. That includes you and me that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. But I love verse 17. It gets forgotten. For God, the God who loved the world, the God who gave his son, did not send his son, that's Jesus, into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son in the world to stand and throw stones at sinners, but he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to stoop to save the world through him, to stoop to the cross. You see, the story in John 8 is a story that is a picture of the gospel, that Jesus stooped to die for all the bad stuff, the secret stuff, the messed up stuff in my life. Jesus is God stooping not to condemn us, not to throw stones at us, but to save us. The judge of the world, the only one with the authority and credentials to condemn me, stooping in the dirt of my world, in the shame of my world, in the guilt of my world, in the regrets of my world, in the mess of my world, to save me. Jesus is the stooping Savior. Did you know that? 
And he stooped to the mire and the mess of my world and your world when he died on the cross. You see, this lady in John 8, what started as the worst day of her life, ended up being the most liberating day. Unbeknownst to her, they brought her to the best person they could. How in the world can I experience that kind of liberation, do what she did, agree with what the stooping Jesus already knows? Some of you are hiding in the dark. You're watching this. You're hiding in the dark. You're hiding in the dingy, dark, cold room of your secret. You're exhausted managing it. It's gotten complicated. Some of you are afraid that someone's going to expose it. Your wife is getting close to finding out about it. Your friends are sniffing around and getting asking questions that are making you feel uncomfortable. Others of you, the door has already begun to crack open and you see the legs of someone at the door, maybe even today, and you're waiting for the face of your accuser to peek under the table. And I want you to know that this story says the one today peeking under the table already knows you're under there, already knows the secret. And here's what it says, verse 12, chapter 8, after the story, the one that peeks under the table, he says, I am the light, the, the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light peeking into your secret, peeking into that complicated scenario you're trying to manage is Jesus, the light of the world. And I need you to know something that light reveals so that it has a chance to heal. For some of you, what you thought was the worst day could be the best day of your life. Listen, when these guys in John 8 drug this woman into the presence of Jesus, they were not informing him of anything. He already knew. And he knows what's going on in your life. Did you know that? He knows you're flirting with danger. He knows you're in deep weeds. He knows that you're in an addiction that is choking the life out of you. He knows that you're flirting with a relationship that's going to burn you. And he's the stooping Savior. And agreeing with what he already knows is what confession is all about. I agree with what he already knows. I'm not informing Jesus of anything. Hey, Jesus, do you know what I've been up to? Here he knows. When my dad came in that room, he knew I was in there. He said, Danny, are you in here? He already knew. He wanted his son to agree with him. Today, the stooping Savior wants you to agree. Little did they know that they drugged this woman to the best possible place. That sure, there was light that revealed her secret, but there was light that was going to heal. There was freedom that was coming her way. There was forgiveness. There was a stooping Savior. I love the fact he didn't just stoop in the story. He stood. What a picture of the fact that Jesus, when he came to earth, he stooped to the cross and died, but he didn't stay dead. That that stooping Savior is a standing Lord. Did you know that? He's alive. What a picture of the gospel. And just like the woman in John 8, I need to believe what the standing Jesus declares. He said to her, she was the only one left. He said, go and sin no more. I agree and confess, then repent and live the rest of my life in response to my encounter with the stooping Savior. 
I leave the prison of the secret sin, but don't exchange the prison of your secret sin for the prison of religion that somehow says I can earn a verdict from God. You go from one prison to the next, but you accept a gift from God. The verdict Jesus secures for you by dying on the cross to save you. Then you live from that verdict. The rest of your life from the verdict of being forgiven, from the verdict of being freed, from the verdict of, 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 of you being needing to be rescued from your sin. For some of you, that's where the heal. Listen, I don't know what your secret is. I can't promise you she'll take you back. I can't promise you your kids will understand that your boss won't fire you. I can't promise you that others won't lose respect for you. I can't promise you there won't be consequences, but aren't you tired of managing your secrets? Hasn't it gotten too complicated? Don't you find yourself paralyzed by the prison of your decisions that have incarcerated you for maybe weeks, months, for some of you years? Freedom is in the presence of the judge. That sounds weird, of the universe because the judge of the universe is the one who stooped to save us when he died. And he's alive. And he's the one who declares, you're forgiven, you're free, you're part of my family forever. Isn't that powerful? <laughs> Before I bring this to a close, can I talk to some of you? I hope you've stayed with me because some of you are saying, man, that was a great sermon for all those with secret sins. Some of you are like, man, I'm going to send this to Uncle George or I'm going to send this to my son or my daughter. This gives hope to all those who are living in secret sin. Others of you are watching this and you're nervous because you're afraid people might get the idea this kind of sermon is going to come across like it's soft on sin. It's anything but that. And the reason you think that is we assume that the way to curb sin is to be vocal and just to hammer sin with the Bible. Kind of like the guys who drug her to Jesus. You see, what we've done is we've embraced a religion of rocks that throw stones at people in their sin. Which makes me intrigued by the men who drug this woman to Jesus. They were ready to condemn her. They were throwing the Bible at her. Listen to what I want to tell you. They were oh so right and oh so wrong because she was not the only one with a secret on that day. With one statement, Jesus exposed the secrets that they had covered with their religion. The stones in their hands had covered the sin in their heart. I don't know what he was writing in the dirt that day, but one commentator suggests that maybe he was writing from oldest to youngest the sins that each of them had committed. You see, here's what I know, guys. You know this. Sometimes those who yell the loudest in condemnation are those who are working the hardest to cover their own secret sins. We all have secrets. Secret pride secret ambition, secret attitudes that we never want anybody to find out, secret thoughts, secret anger, secret judgmentalism, secret lust. We all have secrets. 
One author wrote this. He said, if the inner thoughts of a man were written on his forehead, he'd never take his hat off. I tend to agree. And I think the story suggests this, that you and I need to confess the sin that our religious rocks are hiding. That those of us who have covered our secrets with religion need to agree with what the stooping Savior already knows. And he's writing in the dirt and he's like, I already know that you have that anger. I already know that you're lusting after that one. I know you have that secret addiction. You see, here's the deal. I think you agree with what the stooping Savior, but what's interesting is they all left that day. Did you notice that? She's the only one that stayed. And I think for you and I to experience freedom is to drop the rocks of our religion and stay in the presence, abide with Jesus, to remain and believe what the standing Jesus declares. For some of you, this could be the first day of freedom and forgiveness. Do you guys know something? Do you know what a church like that, do you know what a church like that looks like when it gets it? They're willing to follow their stooping savior by getting in the dirt with people, not drag them into a religion so they can throw rocks at them. But people who get this story, get this message, are willing to invite people to Jesus, willing to get in the dirt of relationships, get in the mess of situations, get into the complication of people's lives in order to invite them to the only one who can offer freedom and forgiveness. They're willing to accept people where they are. That's different than approving where they are. Acceptance is not approval. They're willing to accept them where they are in order to love them to Jesus so he can take them where they need to go. Father, what a beautiful picture. I thank you for the stooping Savior. And I pray that you would help us to come into agreement with what he already knows and what he came to die for. And that we might believe what the standing Lord declares over us. For some of us who came into this conversation with religious rocks, might we drop them to agree and confess and find freedom in the presence of the only one who can offer it. And might we as a church reflect the heart of Christ, loving people to Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a particular story uh, about Jesus that is one of your favorite that maybe causes you to have that reflex? I, I often think of Jesus standing with the woman taken in adultery. Mm. And here are all of these people with stones in their hands wanting to stone her. I once heard a friend of mine preaching that said when he bent down and started uh, drawing things in the sand with his finger, there was different sins mm. that he was talking about. And you, you, you can hear the stones thud as they walked away. Mm. I, I think of that dear lady. Mm. And Jesus looking at her says, where are those who condemn mm. you? I picture her as crying, mm. tears coming down her cheeks. And her shaking her head and saying, no one, Lord, 
and he looks at her, the perfect Lamb of God. And he said, I don't either. Mm. I don't think we realize how many people feel like that woman felt. There, there's more than we think. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they condemn themselves, and so they don't think they're good enough for Jesus. They don't understand the grace of God. What would you say to the Norton campus as we seek to try to make Jesus make sense, accept people where they're at? What kind of word of encouragement or challenge would you give to the Norton campus? Love people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. You, you, you want them to fall in love with Jesus, but they need to feel love themselves, mm. oftentimes before they're ever going to fall in love with Jesus. Mm.